Take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 3, reading verses 15 to 18. Brethren, I, may, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. This I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. As grass withers and the flower fades, this the word of God endures forever. May he bring his blessing. It's one of those things that you don't really acquire in many modern English translations. The New King James is just like that. It's something that, if I can put a plug in for King James, is that when we read Genesis 17, we would not have read the word descendant. We would have read the word seed. To your seed after you, these promises are made. And, and I think there is something to be said for keeping continuity which many modern English translations do not. That word seed flows throughout the Old Testament, beginning with Genesis 3.15, when God said to the serpent, in cursing the serpent, he brought forth that first revelation of his plan and his gospel to bring salvation to all who are his chosen ones who had fallen in Adam, who that's us, we who are born as sinners. And, and that, that curse to Satan is the gospel. <laughs> that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and he shall crush your head. You will bruise his heel. And and it's speaking about Christ. And that word seed from that original promise that met the enemy as a curse is the promise that God carried on throughout the Old Testament and even to here through Abraham and to Moses and to David saying the seed is coming. The one who will crush the serpent's head is coming. Look to him and live. And when we read Genesis 17, what you heard there was that promise of God. Abraham, through you will come the seed. And my covenant will be established in him. And this is what I will do for you. I will give you the inheritance Uh, that symbolizes all of the blessings of my salvation. Believe in me. (laughs) And, And Paul takes up that message here. I want you to see as we read verses 15 to 18 that Paul is still defending that foundational truth of the gospel. That the only way that you can be saved from your sins and delivered from God's judgment and justice His wrath 
is by faith in Jesus Christ. The only way you will receive pardon for all of your sins, and the only way that you will be accepted by God as a righteous man, even though you are a sinner, is by believing in Jesus Christ that His death paid that curse that was against you. And that His obedience and His complete righteousness is what now covers you so that God can come and say to you, I forgive you, I accept you. The only way we receive that forgiveness, the only way that we are accepted is by faith. Now so many have over the years have heard that gospel and they say, yeah, that's okay, but, but our obedience is important. Our obedience must count for something. Our obedience must be necessary in some way. And and Paul's going to get to some of those issues starting at chapter 5, but he spends these chapters saying, don't focus on that. Because it will convolute the truth of how we are made right as sinners so that God can accept us. Paul's still defending that truth. And we are taking it slowly. Some of you might think, Pastor, I'm hearing some similar things week after week. Well, yes, because Paul is giving us bullet points. You know how somebody will will set up a, a, a... a line and just make a point and then they'll have several bullet points under it why that point is true. That's what Paul is doing here in this letter. And he's confronting those who would come and say to you, yes, faith in Jesus Christ needs to be there, but it's not enough. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow the Jewish law. You need to be like a Jew if God is going to accept you. And he's been arguing with all of these points why that is wrong. Now, we may not have that same problem with with circumcision and becoming a Jew in, in our current day. But in the early generation, let's not forget, the first church was Jerusalem. And it was made preeminently of Jewish people who are now being told you don't have to follow all of those things that you followed for centuries. It's now perfected in Christ. You just need to believe in Christ. And do you know how hard it is for the heart to say, yeah, but is that enough? Is that all that I need? That's why we read Proverbs 3. Do not lean upon your own understanding. Trust the Lord with all your heart. That's hard to do, isn't it? We take this slowly because these bullet points of Paul are meant to destroy our confidence in our own goodness. Yes, we're called to obey. Yes, we're called to be a righteous people. How are you doing at that? How is your obedience to God? How is your righteousness? We we can't help but know if Christ is in us, if the Spirit is in us, we can't help but know it's it's failing. I mean, we, we strive and we have those moments, but we also have those moments of sin. 
and our confidence in our own goodness, along with any hint that we somehow contribute to our salvation with our goodness, needs to be destroyed. That our faith is in Christ alone. And Abraham, Paul uses in chapter 3 and 4 to continually resound and make clear this point. Abraham is the prime example of this truth. And again, why is this so important? It's not just in how we look at ourselves. It's how we look at others. It's how we consider the church of Christ. How many of you here know the parable of the prodigal son? It's It's a common parable that even people outside the church know. They use that phrase, oh, the prodigal son. Yeah, we're aware of it. How many of you think that it was the younger son that was prodigal? I I think the parable might be called better, uh, not that it has a title, but it might be better called the parable of the lost son and the prodigal son. Because who was the prodigal son that that parable was told to deal with and it was the elder son it was the elder son because the father was waiting and looking and longing to welcome back the lost son who had come to his senses and he realized oh how I have sinned against my father I will return to him in repentance and, and, and it's interesting that that son, in returning in repentance, he wanted to become a servant. He wanted to earn his way back with the father. And before he could even say, just let me be a servant, the father said, no, you're a son. You're a son. You don't have to earn my love. Why? Because that love of the father is sealed to us. By his son. You're in that. Isn't that wonderful? But then that second son comes along. And, and he's, he's got this attitude. How dare you? We, we need to hear what Paul is saying here. So that we will learn what it is to love the grace of God supremely. And to love the God of grace supremely. Listen to the words of the son to his father, the elder son, who despised the welcoming of such a terrible sinner who wasted the inheritance in in godless living and was so freely welcomed back and received as a son and given that robe by the father. Listen to what the son says. He was angry. And would not go in to the celebration. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. And the son answered and said to his father. Look all these years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me even a young goat. That I might make merry with my friend. Now let's translate that into a Christian who sees someone who's a desperate sinner coming to church now and who has been forgiven. And you've got to sit next to this person with all of their sinful past and to say, 
Let's rejoice. People struggle with that, don't they? How can the Father be so forgiving? Well, that was the problem of the early church. That was the problem with the Pharisees. And that's the problem of our heart. To welcome those whom the Father has delivered through His Son. You see, we need to understand this doctrine so clearly so that we ourselves would love supremely the God of such amazing grace. But we also need to understand this so that we will also love one another in that grace. And you hear the same thing again. The elder brother's son his, his regard for his brother. Listen to what he says. As soon as this son of yours comes, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. Well, I'm going to wait and see if this profession of faith is genuine because I'm not ready to accept it. <laughs> we do that, don't we? Because we can't believe that God could be so generous with His grace to such a sinner. And it's the heart issue. And the Father speaks to the elder son and He says, It's right for us to rejoice because your brother was dead and now is alive. Your brother was lost. He's been found We rejoice with those things, but it can be hard when we know the past. You see, that application that Paul is getting at here pertains to the law. And and what is the end of God's law so that we will love God with all of our heart and that we will love our neighbors as ourselves. You see, the law is not being set aside But Paul is saying you've got to get justification right. Because if you don't, it impacts how you regard the law and your relationship to the law. It's it's so key. And Paul keeps beating that drum. Do you understand? It's only by grace that we have been saved Through faith in Christ, not because of some inherent goodness within us. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. And now he's bringing us to the issue of the covenant. God making a a bonded promise to Abraham. What we call in our circles the covenant of grace. God has made this covenant of grace. He has said, and we see the first revelation of that covenant in Genesis 3.15. He has said, I will save my people from their sins and from death through the offering up of my Son in their place in a cursed death. That's the covenant of grace. Very simply stated. God's promise to save His people from their sins through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But we need to see, even as we read Genesis 3, 
Uh, Genesis 17. And even as we read this, what Paul is saying, do you not understand with whom that covenant was made? And that you're a bystander receiving God's promise. Not because of you, but because of And He's helping us to understand how is it that God can justify us so freely? Simply by faith. And here He's saying it's because God has made, first of all, an unchangeable covenant. God has made a promise. And because He is an unchangeable God, what He promises is unchangeable as well. We know, especially as parents, don't we? And children, you know this of your parents. We are not always good at keeping our promises, are we? We fail. We promise to do something, but other events come in, and that promise has to be set aside because of circumstances. Uh, the, the easy one is, you know, we can blame it on the weather. <laughs> but sometimes those promises get broken because I'm too tired. Uh, something came up and I have to go. We're, we're used to breaking our promises, but you know, it does not happen with God. God is not a man that he should lie. God is one who says, I will. And did you remember in Genesis 17 how many times he said to Abraham, I will, I will, I will. And he's saying, you can trust me. Why? Because I am not a man who lies. I am unchangeable. I promise it will be. And God, even in Genesis 17, says that this covenant He has made with Abraham, He says it's an everlasting covenant. And it's still going on today because, because of Christ, the one to whom it was made. And what is, uh, just, just, there's so much to it, but let's just focus on one thing that gets revealed in Genesis 17. What was the one huge promise of that covenant being revealed to Abraham in Genesis 17. It is this. I promise to be your God. I promise to be your God and God to your children. Isn't that amazing? That's, that's why in our circle, some of you who aren't familiar, that's why we extend the sign of baptism to Children of households of believers. Because God has said, I promise to be your God and God to your children. Is He your God? How do we receive that promise? Do we go out and say, okay, God, I'll do this, 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 and this. Is that enough to receive such an amazing promise from God? He says, no, believe in me. That's what he says. And we know, as, as we're going to hear as well, that, that that faith is being placed in Christ, who has fulfilled the terms that enable God to save us from our sins. 
We heard from 1 John 8. How is it that God is able to forgive our sins and be just in accepting us? It's because what what our sins deserve, the, the penalty that our sins deserve, was satisfied in the death of Christ. And that's why he says there in 1 John 1 9, he is faithful and just. And God says, believe me, believe my promise. Now the question becomes was Israel able to keep covenant with God? Were they able in their own life to obey? Now you think about what God promised in Genesis 17. They were given this covenant. They were given the sign of the covenant. They received the land. They were given the law. They had a tabernacle and a temple. They had everything placed before them. Where God says here, here's more and more for you to understand my promise. Believe in me. And yet you read the Old Testament and we realize, no, Israel failed. Their obedience, three days into their journey after being delivered from Egypt, their disobedience, their complaining, unbelieving hearts were revealed. God, you brought us out into the desert to die. That's what they said. Was Israel able to keep covenant with God? The answer is no. Are you able, in and of yourself? I mean, did you... Go all day yesterday without disobeying God. And if you say, yes, you're a liar. Because we can't. We can't go one day without disobeying God. But did God's covenant fail? And the answer is no. Because God's covenant, and I know this is hard for us, God's covenant was not based on Israel's righteousness. It was based on another's. The Lord Jesus. God's covenant with us is not based on our righteousness. It's based on Christ. And he gives this illustration. Verse 15. An illustration about last wills and testaments. That's what verse 15 is all about. If someone makes a will, he says, I'm speaking in the manner of man. If a man makes a covenant, he makes a will and testament. Can anyone break it or add to it? Even back then, the answer is no. You don't change someone's will and testament. You can't. We see that even today. Someone's last will and testament cannot be annulled or changed, even though people get very angry. You know, it's one of the one things that I've seen often, even even in Christian circles, where a will of a dying of, of a dead parent separates families. Because everyone thinks they deserve something. From someone. And the battle for inheritances are great. And what family members will do to stake their claim. And, and what incredulous responses you get when you find out. Mm, 
mom and dad didn't leave us anything. They gave it all to this institution. We're going to fight it. Do you know the courts, regardless of how much anger and effort is expended, the courts do not change that will. It's sealed. And Paul is saying, if that's the case amongst us, how much more with God? (laughs) That the covenant that He has made to deliver you from your sins and to establish you within His kingdom, accepted wholly by Him, can never be broken. Can you believe that? And that's what God is saying. This is what I have promised, and this is what will be. Even though Israel, even though Abraham, even though Isaac, even though Jacob, even though Jacob's sons had some pretty terrible sins, did they still get the land? Did they still receive God's blessings? Yes. And so it is with us, and so it is with justification. This is God's covenant sealed in Christ. God's grace promised to us. God's Holy Spirit given. Not because we have earned it. Not because our obedience, our law keeping, not because our goodness has been so worthy. But because God promised. I always say, and I think I know enough with many of you parents here, we all have children who are straying. We've all had children who, who, who seem to have left the fold and gone into the world. And, and if you haven't, praise the Lord. But what is it that brings our children to that saving knowledge in Christ? Is it how good we have been as parents? I mean, God uses that. But it always comes back. God has been gracious because He promised I will be God to you and to your children. And with those children who are straying and we think, wow, they are so far from God, they're probably never going to be saved. My friends, dear parents, if that's your thought, you know what you're hoping in? You're hoping not in what God has promised. You're hoping in some human goodness to work. Hope in the Lord. And that's what Paul is saying here. Look to the unchangeable covenant. That's what we believe. We believe in God who promises. And God has promised to be your God. God has promised to give you His Spirit. God has promised to justify you. God has promised to bring you salvation. And He has said you can receive it by just believing in My Son who is the Lord of this covenant. And you will be saved. And don't we hear that through the New Testament? All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that amazing? That's where we rest. And so search your hearts. Do you call upon the name of the Lord? Do you look to Christ 
for your salvation. When you think about death and what lies after death, and you think, well, I sure hope I get to heaven. And and, then ask yourself, what are you relying on? And if you say, well, I'm a pretty good person. My friends, you've deceived yourself. There is no hope in your own goodness. It is only found in Christ. And that's because, secondly, we see here that Christ is the seed of this promise. In verses 16 and 17, Paul makes this point. Do you not understand that when God said to Abraham, I will make you the father of many nations, and and through your seed, through your descendants, will come the, the fullness of this promise. And Paul here is saying, do you not understand that when God spoke of this seed, He was speaking of Christ? He wasn't speaking of Isaac. He wasn't speaking of Jacob or David. But he was speaking of the one seed, the Lord Jesus, who would come. And so who did Abraham put his trust in? It was the Christ. Did he put his trust in his goodness? In accordance with the law? No, as he says in verse 17, that law did not come for another 430 years. The temple, tabernacle temple, wasn't set up for another 430 years. But the promise was that the Messiah, the Christ, is coming to accomplish the deliverance of all of His people. He would be the one who would be the sacrifice. And that's the point here. That the promises that God made were first to His Son. My Son, you go and be that sacrifice for the sins of My people. And the blessing of your sacrifice will bring forth the salvation of all of My people. And that was the promise of the Father to the Son. My friends, we, as the redeemed of the Lord, are simply caught up in that. And we receive the blessing of that promise by believing in the Son. In Christ, 2 Corinthians 1.20, in Christ, all of the promises of God are sealed. Every one of them. In Christ, all of God's promises were purchased for us. In His life of obedience, Jesus accomplished the righteousness that we need to be before God. In His death, Jesus paid the penalty that our sins deserve, the judgment and the guilt that we have before God. In His resurrection, Jesus gains that promise of eternal life that we need. In His ascension, Jesus has secured a place for all of His people around the throne of God. Forever. All those promises are sealed in Christ. 
They're not sealed. They're not gained. They're not kept by our performance. Now, I'm not going to qualify that today. That'll come next week. But can you accept that? That's hard, isn't it? Because we want to say, yes, but pastor, what about that man who does this? I simply say, do you know, if you don't believe it, understand it. Christians can do some pretty heinous things. We, we have the example of many in the Old Testament. But God's grace abounds where sin abounds. And God's grace abounds even more. And that's why he says here, you need to understand the inheritance that you gain in Christ. This is the last point in verse 18. That inheritance is not of the law. Because if it's of the law, my friends, you wouldn't earn it. (laughs) You wouldn't gain it. That inheritance is of promise. And again, you think about Israel. Did Israel, when you read the Old Testament, can you say that Israel truly laid hold of their inheritance by their faithfulness to God? No, they, they lost it many times over. They squandered what God gave them. They were like that lost son, selling their inheritance to the world and then finding themselves in the depravity of their sinfulness and having to cry out to God, Oh, we have sinned. Can you accept us? And isn't it an interesting thing that every time you read it in the Old Testament, every time the people were humbled and they looked to God and they say, forgive us. What do we read? He forgave them. He forgave them. King Manasseh, he's always the one that astounds me. The most wicked king Israel ever saw. And in his cell, repentance fell upon him. He humbled himself before God. And God forgave him. Hard to accept, isn't it? But that's the truth. Because our inheritance is by covenant, not by our performance. Let me ask you this. Did God promise to save you from your sins? Did it fail? You might think, yes, it's failed. I sinned yesterday. But did His promise to save you from your sins fail? No. Because that promise was made in Christ. And what do we read in Matthew 1.21? You will call His name Jesus. And here's the promise. For He will save all His people from all their sins all their sins. Every time we say Jesus, we're echoing that promise. Did God's promise to give you eternal life fail because you, you sinned again and again and again and again that same sin? And the answer is no. Because that promise to give you eternal life was made in Christ. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Isn't that amazing? 
Did God's promise to give you His Holy Spirit fail because you have abiding sin in your life or you have strayed away into sinful conduct and still walk in it? And the answer is no, as hard as that is for us to believe. Because the promise of the Spirit was made in Christ. And here's what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1. In Christ you also trusted and were sealed with the Spirit of promise. He is the guarantee of your inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of God's glory. You see, the promises made to us, we receive them by by promise. The inheritance God has for us, we gain Him in Christ. And this is the God whom we are called to believe in. Do you trust in the Lord? With all your heart? Or do you lean upon your own understanding? One is a way of life, the other is a way of death. Let us pray.